It is so nice to see you folks. We've, uh... All right, here's my confession about you folks. When I'm reading the book of Acts, I think of you as the church in Antioch. The evangelistic and missionary powerhouse of that time. And uh, I'm just so encouraged by what is going on through this church. The, the impact that you have is on hundreds of thousands of believers through these pastors that are being trained. And um, probably within the next several years, if the Lord continues to bless Spread of Grace, it'll be millions of people will hear the Word of God because of what this church, by God's grace, has been able to do. So, um, this is so much bigger than you can imagine. And when you go to these places and you, uh, you see what God's doing through His Word and by His Spirit, because of the work of Christ, it is like being on a, another planet. It's, 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 it's a, a foretaste of heaven. That would be my only explanation. So, if you would, I'd, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. For those who like to use their phones, you can put that version on. The title of the message is The Marks of a Messianic Ministry. The Marks of a Messianic Ministry. Acts Chapter 14, verses 21 through 28. And this is, this is the inerrant and infallible Word of God. We are hearing from God. When they preached the Gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended by the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Let me open us in prayer. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that we have truth Timeless truth. Truth that we can live our lives by. Truths that we can raise our families by. Truths that are the plumb line for life. Truths worth living for and truths worth dying for. And Lord, we're thankful as a church, as a, a, a church of believers, that we can open your word and we can hear from you this day. 
So Lord, as you speak to us through your word, uh, allow your Holy Spirit to walk up and down our souls to comfort those who need comfort, to convict those who need conviction. And Lord, to do all this for your glory. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So our historical narrative opens up and Paul and Barnabas are arriving in, in this small town of Derby. And just before Derby, they had been ministering in uh, a town called Lystra. And in Lystra, they had faithfully proclaimed the full gospel with all its benefits. Benefits like the promise that the Holy Spirit will enter your soul. And you will know and you will sense the very reality of having peace with God and having the peace of God. Also in their gospel presentation, no doubt would have been the proclamation that you will know that you were once outside the kingdom of God, but now God has brought you inside the kingdom of God. And that, that, that gospel presentation that Paul and Barnabas would have given uh, to those listening there would have been because of Christ's work on the cross. And that believers who were once spiritually dead will now know and understand that they have obtained Eternal life. Amen. And you see, they are not imagining these things. No, they are continuing the ministry of Jesus. In in John 17, 3, this is what Jesus said. And this is present tense, eternal life. That they will know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, a full gospel presentation allows a believer to know. That they've been brought into union with Christ. A deep, intimate communion and union with Christ that surpasses all relationships, doesn't it? And that relationship is greater than life itself in both its quality and its duration. But like anything of great value, there is also a great cost. And the cost that Paul and Barnabas would have spoken about would have been no less than each and every disciple's own life. And this too was a part of the gospel that Jesus proclaimed, that Paul and Barnabas preached. And that each and every person here today that names the name of Christ needs to come to terms with. Listen to what Jesus himself says in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see, the gospel that Jesus proclaimed, the gospel that Paul and Barnabas proclaimed was in fact the same Gospel, amen? The same gospel with all the blessings and the same gospel that will in fact cost you sitting here today everything. Quite simply, I once heard a pastor say uh, this about being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It is all of you for all of him. It's, It's all of you for all of him. That's the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you're new to this church and you've only ever heard about the temporal blessings, but no one ever explained the cost. 
And I'll tell you, friends, it will cost you everything. If you've ever purchased a car, you know that there are a few things that are written in bold if you decide to finance it and, and all those things like, say, the, the purchase price, interest rate, the number of months of payments are usually in 12 or 14 font. And then you have pages and pages and pages of small print. And, and in your mind, you say, I just want the keys, right? Just, just let me drive away. But as any of you know that have signed one of those contracts, that those pages of small print can impact your life. Things like the amount of car insurance you're required to have for that vehicle if you're leasing it, or maybe the the length of the warranty or penalties for being uh, late on the payment. But unlike the acquisition of a car, Jesus never had any fine print, did he? Everything that he discussed was in bold print and on page one. All the blessings, all the warnings, all in bold print, page one. And all the faithful heralds throughout all of redemptive history proclaim both the cost and the blessings. So today we'll look at four marks of a messianic ministry. That is a, a ministry that, that reflects the very words of Jesus. And that is the only model for a church in the first century. And it's the only model for churches today. And we know that our local church is responsible to mirror that ministry, aren't we? And as we heard earlier, that churches are... Not buildings, but churches or people. And as any good pastor will do in a sermon, there's always what we call the sermonic you. So yes, this message is for the church, but it is for you sitting here today, my friend. Every single one of you. And my question to you is, does your life mirror does it have the marks of a messianic ministry for you, each of you? And in our text, we're going to see four marks of a ministry that bear the marks of our Messiah, of his ministry. So let's uh, open our text up and we see in verse uh, 21 and 22, uh, my first point, a messianic ministry is marked by proclamation. It's marked by proclamation. Look at verse 21. It says, And when they had preached the gospel in Derby to that city. So the scene opens up. Paul and Barnabas are arriving in Derby. If you don't know the context of this chapter, they had just made a 60-mile journey by foot. The day after, Paul was brutally stoned by the masses who rejected the gospel in Lystra. And what do they do? They, they immediately began heralding the good news of the gospel. And we know what Paul and Barnabas preached because they always preached the same message Jesus preached. You see, our gospel heralds only proclaimed what Christ proclaimed and they only uh, were able to do such a thing. Remember, being a, an apostle uh, means a sent one. 
And as a sent one, you're only authorized to proclaim what the king has proclaimed. And the term good news, uh, what we call the gospel, the good news was originally used by heralds of kings to announce the decrees of the king. Listen to what the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. This is the bottom line of the bottom line of the good news of the gospel. He says in 1 Corinthians verse 3, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. You see, this isn't his message. This is the king's message, right? He's delivering the king's message. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. See, that, friends, is the the decree from the king of kings. Amen? That's his message. And that message is for you who have ears to hear. And what they knew then... And what we know today and what we know in spread of grace when we go throughout the world is if God has given people ears to hear, they receive that message. And they're radically regenerated. And they immediately become disciples. That's why you're here. You've heard this message. You've received this message because of God's grace. And you're disciples. And that's exactly what we see in our text. It tells us in verse 21 that they made many disciples. Now, I want you to notice that Paul and Barnabas did not just go into town and make converts. We oftentimes mistake the proclamation of the word of God with the work of evangelism as if evangelism is somehow separate from making disciples. But but look again at our text. It says that they made many disciples. See, the inference is they didn't merely blow into town, blow up the town, and blow out of town. No, our gospel messengers were disciple makers. And that means they've committed their lives to these people. And they continue to proclaim to these new believers all the benefits, all the difficulties, and all the cost of being the Messiah's disciples. Now, now here's an interesting fact. The Apostle Paul, at this point in, in, in his first missionary trip, this is the end of the first missionary trip. He, he is, in fact, quite bruised up. He has endured both physical trauma and he has no doubt dealt with emotional hardship. Why? Because he proclaimed the truth about sin. He proclaimed the truth about salvation. He proclaimed the truth about being a follower of the Messiah. Martin Luther once stated, Always preach in such a way that if the people listening to you do not come to hate their sin, that they will instead hate you. Close quote. And I will tell you, friends, the Apostle Paul was hated by many. And as any faithful expositor of the word of God will tell you, when you preach the whole counsel of God, people are going to hate you. People may threaten you physically. They will say things to hurt you emotionally. 
And the one thing I know about all faithful expositors is they're usually lonely and weary. And the Apostle Paul here at the end of his first mission trip has experienced a great deal of hostility. And Paul is at this point, and we don't really see this in the text, but we can see it geographically. He's close to his hometown. And I'm sure that it must have been a part of him that considered just going home. Just a little downtime. Maybe just to be comforted. Likely his mother was probably still alive. She probably would have prepared some matzo ball soup and some brisket for him. And someone who's been on many missionary trips and those who are here that have been on mission trips, man, isn't it nice just to go home and sleep in your own bed? <laughs> to be with your family and to be around your friends, to be back in your church again. And being someone who's uh, preached in third world prisons and difficult places. To at least have a reprieve from people trying to kill you. But, but look at what he and Barnabas do. It says in verse 20 that, that they actually return to Lystra and to Iconium and to, and to Antioch. Now, every SGM missionary will tell you at the end of the day, we always do something uh, we'll call a debriefing, where we go around the room and we try and analyze how the day went, how we could improve. We, iron sharpens iron. We, we help critique each other. And we also uh, plan what we're going to be doing the next day. Now, you have to imagine, uh, here's this group that is weary, this group that has been away from their, their hometown for a long time. A group that has been run out of almost every town that they've been at. That they want to go back. You know what? I get it. The last time we left Kenya... You have 75 pastors there weeping as you're leaving. Begging you to please come back. Keep teaching us. Help us. Or the last time I was in Haiti leaving a church of 10,000. hanging on to every word that we're proclaiming in the scriptures because they want to hear the truth. They want to hear the truth about their sin. They want to hear their truth about forgiveness. They want to hear the truth about hope outside of the world that they live in, which is riddled with violence and death and disease. Or just this last trip in Mexico, how the group just laid hands on us and prayed for us, knowing that we were going five and a half hours into the middle of, I don't even know where we were at. I said to Mike, I think if I was a flat earth herb, that we would be at the end. (laughs) And about the time I said that, the road actually ended. And here come these men to carry our bags. And I'm like, I'm like, I guess we're walking. There's, There's no more road. So what drove those men back there? What what drives your pastor to go back to Uganda? 
I mean, we know we're going to see these people in heaven one day, amen? Because we want to continue to disciple them. That God's Spirit doesn't let you just stop. And we see in our, in our text that Paul's eyes are fixed on the Messiah's ministry. I mean, if anybody discipled, it was Jesus, amen? And there was no cost that Jesus would not take to continue to disciple. But think about this. Put yourself, use your sanctified imagination for a second, put yourself in that room. This is the day after Paul has been stoned, and they thought he was dead. He's likely covered with lacerations. He has contusions. I mean, he's just been stoned. I mean, he must have looked like someone ran a bus over him, then backed it up and ran over him again. He's likely missing teeth. He'd have fresh wounds, maybe broken bones. At this point in the trip, he likely has malaria or had malaria. And you can ask Pastor Joe or Mike about the effects of that or me. And no doubt the, the group that he's with, are, are, are they're exhausted. They are, they're tired of being run out of towns and being rejected by the masses. And, and, and they'd be exhausted. As any of the missionaries that have, are from here will tell you, after you're away for two weeks in Africa, you just want to sleep for a week. And even the last 24 hours in our, in our text, that they were likely ministering to Paul because he just got stoned. So what's their plan? Let's go back. Let's go back. Paul, they almost killed you. I mean, forget about uh, the the verbal and the physical attacks for a second and didn't consider this is a 200-mile journey by foot. 13 days of walking. And Paul's not intimidated by the physical demands. He's not intimidated by those who are going to reject the gospel. He knows that he has to continue the mandates of the messianic ministry because that's what mattered to Jesus. Jesus discipled people. And it cost him his life. Now think about being a Christian. Right? How many people are Christians in here? Right? Yeah. Think about being a Christian as being a, in a 400-meter relay race. See, for Paul and for those messengers at that time, uh, they, they saw Jesus run his, 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 his race, right? And, and they're literally receiving the, the baton from Jesus. And it's their turn to run. The same message. The same motives and the same desires. In Luke 9.51, this is what it says about Jesus. 
And when the days drew near to him, Jesus, for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And in our text, our missionaries, they, they, they knew what to say. They knew where to go. And they knew there would be revival when they went. And there'd be, re- there'd be revolt. There'd be riots. And they knew there'd be a price to pay. But Paul understood that he was no longer in charge of his life. And years later, Paul writes these churches in this area in Galatia. And this is what he tells them. I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, in our text, uh, uh, friends, uh, Christ is no longer on the planet, is he? It's the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and the Apostles and all the disciples running the race. Hold your hand out. The baton's now in your hand. This is for you. This is for you. It's your leg of the race. So in our text, our gospel heroes return to the very towns that tried to kill them and the very places with mass rejection. What's the motive? There's disciples. And disciples need what? Disciples. And, and we're told that when they finally arrived that they strengthened the souls of the disciples. Now, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you, you know that every day is a battle. Amen? I mean, it is hand-to-hand combat with the world, with your own flesh, and with the devil. So our, our missionaries, they, they know what to do with these new disciples, and they, they strengthen them by preaching and teaching the Word, by prayer, by, by fellowship. And their ministry is marked by the mandates of the Messiah, and that meant that they encouraged the disciples to continue in the faith, to persevere, to persist in the confidence of the Word of God. What we have is truth. The world doesn't have truth. To persist in this confidence, this is God's Word. And and to pray earnestly in times of trouble. And friends, we are in trouble in this world. And if you think our government is going to figure out how to solve these things, the best they can do outside of God's divine intervention, the best they're doing now is rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. We have truth. So they encourage them with the word of God, with prayer, with, with fellowship. And, and Jesus taught them truth. And Paul and Barnabas are teaching them truth. And we teach truth according to the scriptures. How many people here want to hear the truth? 
Look at verse 22. Here's the truth. That through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Well, that's not very encouraging, Pastor Lance. No, it is actually. It's the truth. Right? When the Lord saved me, I remember just praying, Lord, I just want to know the truth. I've made such a mess of my life. I need truth. So our messengers, they give a full disclosure of what the life of God in the soul of a man involves. And Paul and Barnes, they know firsthand that following Jesus means that the world will treat you the same way it treated Jesus. Amen. Jesus himself said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And here we find, again, the mark of being a messenger of the Messiah, of being a faithful herald of the king. You see, a herald for a king at that time could never and would never change the decrees of the king, would he? What did Jesus proclaim? Matthew eleven twelve. 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. In verse 22, that word tribulation in Thayer's Greek lexicon, this is the definition. The afflictions of those hard-pressed by siege and the calamities of war. The affliction of those hard-pressed by siege and the calamities of war. And I believe that, that many groups throughout our country are in for a rude awakening Many that call themselves Christians because they ignore God's sovereign call. And how many have been misled from pulpits where they believe being a Christian is like being invited to a picnic? And that church is more about ice cream socials and sing songs and pancake breakfasts. You see, friends, it's one thing to think that you're going to a church picnic and you decide to find your picnic basket from last year and brush off the dust and you, uh, maybe you get some uh, cheese and some other dainties to nibble on, maybe even get a bottle of Perrier. I mean, that sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? But imagine you go to the location where the church picnic is designated to be at and you find out that's no picnic at all. In fact, it's a war. And you're thrown on the front line and all you have is your picnic basket and whatever you brought. May I tell you that entering the kingdom of God is no picnic. It has been and will always be hand-to-hand combat with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I can tell you firsthand You're going to lose many skirmishes. But the battle belongs to the Lord. Amen. He will be victorious. So we see the the first uh, mark of a messianic ministry is marked by proclamation. A a proclamation, a full disclosure of all the benefits, all the blessings, and all the wartime warnings and afflictions of being a follower of Christ. It's all of you for all of him. That's what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, look at me at verses uh, 23. Point two, a messianic ministry is marked by presbyteries. 
A messianic ministry is marked by presbyteries. It says that, that they appointed elders. That word is presbyteros in Greek. The word means elder or presbytery is another word. And the gospel heralds give the, a biblical understanding of the necessity of elders and who appoints elders according to the scriptures. And why is this a messianic mandate? Because this is vital to the health and the well-being of a local church. Who calls elders? God does. Elders are Christians who do things that ordinary Christians are called to do exceedingly well. Elders are only ever men. Men who are above reproach. Not perfect, but above reproach. Men who have the gift of teaching and preaching the word of God. And this is the second mark of a messianic ministry. That that there are elders in each church that are led, that lead the flock. John MacArthur states, quote, Proper biblical government by elders strengthens the church. And the biblical norm for church leadership is a plurality of God-ordained elders. Furthermore, elder-led church governance is the only pattern for church leadership given in the New Testament. Nowhere in Scripture do we find a local assembly ruled by majority opinion or by one pastor. Close quote. So who chooses the elder in a church? God calls them. Other elders choose them. And in our text, it's likely that the elders in the church at Antioch, they were the ones who sent out Paul and Barnabas. Likely they are elders and they are elders that are appointing other elders. Paul and Barnabas, we know Paul was a capital A apostle, uh, but Barnabas was not a capital A apostle, but a sent one. That's the meaning of apostle, sent one, sent by God. And we, and we see this mark of the messianic ministry. It's crystal clear in verse 42. And how elders appoint other elders and how they are chosen by the disciples and called to protect the other disciples. And we're told that Paul and Barnabas choose them in every church. Elders are called to lead by example. Elders are called to lead sacrificially with diligence and with devotion. Elders are charged with teaching and feeding and protecting the church. And it's elders who are accountable to God for those in their charge. Amen. It's a weighty responsibility. And a ministry marked by that of Jesus, is that those men are devote their lives to the flock. And if need be, that they are willing to lay down their lives for you. Do you ever think of your elders like that? Many places in the world that I've been to, uh, uh, people will come in and they will kill the elders. And elders know when they sign on the dotted line that that is part of being an elder. Jesus himself said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Elders are under shepherds, under the messianic ministries of Christ. And friends, I would call you to pray for your elders. Thank God for your elders. 
and realize as the culture continues to change so rapidly that these men know that they're called to actually die for you. For you. Verse 23, and with prayer and fasting, Paul and Barnabas committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So, you see, Paul and Barnabas were not merely setting up a tent and having revival meetings throughout the area. No, that is not what they're doing. They're making disciples. They're appointing elders. And then and only then do we see that we have local churches established. Again, MacArthur states, quote, Much can be said for the benefits of leadership made up of a plurality of godly men. Their combined counsel and wisdom helps assure that decisions are not self-willed or self-serving a single individual. And then he says this. In fact, one-man leadership is characteristic of cults, not the church. Think about some of the churches maybe you folks have come from. See, churches are only churches that meet this criteria. A church is a group of regenerated disciples of Jesus Christ and, and led by God-ordained elders who proclaim the whole counsel of God and protect the flock, even at the expense of their own lives. But here's something that I think helps us in the United States. Again, I'm quoting John MacArthur. Sorry, after 15 years of sitting under him, I think he's worth quoting once in a while. Again, MacArthur speaks of the necessity of biblical church governance when he states, quote, because of its heritage and democratic values and its long history of congregational church government, modern American evangelism often views the concept of elder rule as suspicion. The clear teaching of Scripture, right? That's my truth. The only truth that I have. The clear Teaching of Scripture, however, demonstrates that the biblical norm for church leadership is a plurality of God-ordained elders, and only by following this biblical pattern will the church maximize its fruitfulness for the glory of God. Close quote. Do you realize how blessed you are to have this in this church? And how many churches are doubling down on something that is nowhere in Scripture. So we see in verses 21 through 23 that the Messianic ministry is marked by proclamation. Uh, um, 21-22, then we see a Messianic ministry is marked by presbyteries. But here's, uh, in verses 24 through 26, point three, a Messianic ministry is marked by purpose. It's marked by purpose. It says when they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. See, the one thing that you clearly see in the gospel accounts is that Jesus' ministry is one of purpose and one of priority. Amen? I mean, you can't miss that with Jesus. And that's exactly what you see with our gospel messengers in our text. They had purpose in where they went. And they had purpose in what they said. In each of these cities that they preached in, Pisidia, Pamphylia, Perga, were of paramount importance in, that, in the dispersion of the gospel. 
Again, it's, this is a 175-mile journey at this point by foot. 11 days of travel. Travel like Uganda, where you don't know what's around the next corner. Travel in Kenya, travel in Haiti, or in the, in the, the mountains of Mexico, where you don't know who's growing what over that hill and why people are standing there looking at you like they want to kill you. But you see, our messengers knew that the gospel was eternal in its quality and in its duration, and it didn't matter what would happen to them, that the message was more important than them. Is that how you can qualify your life? Is the message that Jesus has placed inside you more important than your life? It's all of you for all of him. Nothing less will do with Jesus. And he tells us that. That's on page one. That's in bold print. Think about when you leave the house in the morning. Is that your thought? Who can I proclaim the gospel to? Every single thing that happens throughout your day is in God's providential plans and purposes. And those people that he brings into your life are souls that are either going to be in heaven or in hell. And you have the truth, don't you? And they don't. Look at verse 25. They had spoken the word in Perga. Other translations say when they had preached the word in Perga. Perga is the capital of this newly constituted region in Pamphylia. It is the most populated city in the entire one to two year mission trip that they are on. It's like Paul saving the best for last. And time and time again, you see Paul and Barnabas' intention. You see their purpose. That this road that they're on was called the Via Sebastian. Think of like the Route 80 of, the, of their time. And our messengers are strategic, they're intentional. And now, now to us, we oftentimes look at evangelism and discipleship as being what we call like organic, that we don't really want structure. And we, and we try and convince ourselves that we need to create friendships and we need to do kind acts and we need to find things that we have in common. And, and then, then maybe one day, maybe one day, if I build up enough courage, I'll uh, witness to them. But none of those things are in Scripture. Every time Paul and Barnabas rolled into a town, they didn't know anybody. This last time that I was in Mexico, we had a man that had been coming to the training several years ago, and he determined to go into this village out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, probably past nowhere. There was, that's where that road ended. It was a village of 187 people. They don't even speak Spanish. They speak Totonacan. And he determined that he was going to go there with the gospel, an area that had never been reached. He comes back to the training this time, asked us to come visit the church. Population 187 in the entire village. We go to the church that day. You know how many people were in the church? 140. 
when, they got, when they got done with church, the entire church left. And I said, boy, they're in a hurry. But yeah, they go out and they do outreach in the community every Sunday. Think about our local churches being that mission-minded. One commentator says they preach the good news of God's gracious offer of the forgiveness of sins and eternal life through faith in the crucified and risen Messiah available to both Jews and Gentiles. Friends, is that the primary purpose of your life? To proclaim this message? William Carey, a missionary to India, he's probably credited as the founder of the modern missionary movement. He once said this, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that do not matter. I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that do not matter. You know, I spent 30 years in the business world. You know how convicting that statement is? You know how many punches I pulled so that I could be successful in business? How many people I didn't proclaim the gospel to? See, the proclamation of the gospel was and is the primary purpose of all disciples of Jesus. This is the sermonic you, friends. This is for each and every one of you. Our Lord had purpose in his travels. He had purpose in his message. He had purpose in the choosing of his disciples. And we see that purpose in our messengers, don't we? They're doing the same thing. The baton's in their hand and they know it's their turn to run the race. Is the gospel the primary purpose of your life? Is it? Is it? After Perga, verse 26, they went down to Italia, nine-mile journey to the seaport. So again, look at yourself. Look at the message. Messianic ministry is marked by proclamation. Is that your primary purpose as a Christian? Messianic ministry is marked by presbyteries. Are you... Praising God that you're sitting in a church that is aligned with the word of God. And that you have men that are willing to, to die for you. Not just proclaim truth, but to actually die for that truth. And a messianic ministry is marked by purpose. Is that what you see in your life? This is my purpose. Verses 26 through 28, and we'll finish. Point four. A messianic ministry is marked by providence. A messianic ministry is marked by providence. Providence is defined as God's caring provision for his people as he guides them in their journey through life, accomplishing his purpose in them. Is that how you see your life? Is he accomplishing his purposes through you as he protects and provides for you? It says that they went from Italia and they sailed to Antioch. So after this several week journey by foot, they actually, this missionary band gets on the ship and they return to their home church. 
They return to Calvary Bible Church next week. For they had been commended by, to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Quite simply, that all the Lord had providentially planned for our uh, apostles, for, for our disciple makers, all that he had planned, he'd done. And as any missionary will tell you, that missionary work is work. Amen? And it's only by and through the grace of God that our missionaries, our texts, accomplish anything, let alone all of God's appointed work. And it's only by the grace of God that they actually return home. Think about it. This missionary trip wasn't two weeks. I can lose 20 pounds in two weeks on a mission trip. This is one to two years. I mean, they must have looked like they went through a war. And they actually did, didn't they? Three hundred and sixty-five to seven hundred and thirty days of having God's providential hand upon them, each and every moment of each and every day. And brothers and sisters, I pray that's how you see your life. Every moment of every day, God's providential hand is upon you, and that you sense His grace and His mercy. And that your life is ultimately fixed and focused on doing all things for his glory. Amen? For fulfilling the, the work that is now yours to do. Are you able to say that today with 100% honesty? I'm doing this. I'm willing to pay the cost. Verse 27 says, and they arrived and they gathered the church together. So they, they assembled the church and the church, uh, that, uh, this is the church that understood the, the mandates, right? This is this church. This is the church that earnestly prayed uh, to the Lord for, to care for Paul and Barnabas and all those who, who were sent. And as you're going to hear from Joe when he comes back, verse 27, the Paul and Barb declared all that God had done with them. See, our, our messengers understood what had transpired, the salvation of Gentiles, the appointing of elders, the planning of churches, the vicious attacks by those who would reject the gospel, even the minutest of details, all, all were part of God's providential plans and purposes. says in Acts 10.38 about Jesus that God was with him. And this is the amazing part of, of missions uh, is that you begin to see God in every detail, don't you? <laughs> and your faith grows and your trust for God grows. And as a missionary will tell you, you, you know God's with you. That somehow you get uh, bolder. And you begin to realize this message is more important than my life. I mean, think about Paul and Barnabas. They, they grew up Jewish. The one thing that they definitely did growing up is they hated Gentiles. They despised Gentiles. 
And now we see in our text, because of God's saving grace, because of how he takes the life of God and puts it into the soul of each and every Christian because of Christ's eternal work on the cross, they're willing to risk their lives for these ones that they once despised. Isn't that what God did to you? And nothing less? Listen to what Paul writes to these churches later. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. See, those external marks were because of the marks that God had put in him. Amen? What was inside cost him everything, and eventually his life. Verse 27. It says that God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Think about this. Because of the atoning work of Christ, because of his messianic mandates, because Paul and Barnabas took the message and received the message and proclaimed the message, the ministry of proclamation, of presbyteries, of purpose, of, of providence. Jesus not only opened the gate a little bit for the Gentiles, he blew the hinges off the gates of heaven. And these people that never knew that they could be forgiven of their sins, just like we heard in Uganda, right, brother? Now know and believe that their sins are forgiven according to the atoning work of Christ. Verse 28. And they remained no little time with the disciples. They're back in their home church. And what do they do? They lock arms with the fellow elders. They, they are probably back preaching and teaching again. They are encouraging the saints. They're probably going to houses. You know they're going to houses because there weren't any church buildings. Discipling. Coming alongside. Friends, this message isn't just for Joe and a couple men. This is for every single person here who names the name of Christ. The baton's in your hand. You have the gospel. What are you going to do with it? Who are you going to tell about it? Friends, we are in a world that is going to die in their sins. And we have the right words. We have a Messiah that died for their sins, according to the scriptures, one who was buried and one who rose again. That promises to give eternal life to everyone who believes in his name. And what about you who's not a believer today? Who, who says, I, I, I'm not interested in any of these things. See, I can't get you to believe anything. But what I do know is when the Holy Spirit works through his word and, and he walks up and down your soul, if you are a sinner and you need a savior, that, that he will indeed tell you that you are a sinner. And you will repent and you will know and trust that Christ died for your sins. 
And if that's you here today, today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow's too late. We have no idea what tomorrow holds. You may not be here. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this snapshot of missions. We thank you, Lord, that no matter where our missionaries went, whether at home or in distant lands, that they proclaimed your word. And as they proclaimed the gospel, or wherever they, com- com- they proclaimed it, that it was heard, it was received, and that there were uh, some who were radically regenerated and born again. And that the life of God entered their souls and that they knew and understood that they were no longer their own, but they were Christ. And Lord, as we uh, wrestle with these scriptures, we have questions to ask ourselves. Is this me? Am I surrendering all that there is in me? Or is there a part of me I'm holding out? Is there secret sin that is preventing me from thinking that I can uh, ever serve? Is there a a love of the world or of money or of, of something that I'm placing higher than God that I need to repent of? Lord, we know that you are a God who desires to redeem a people to worship you forever. That there's no sin that you cannot forgive. So Lord, work in the souls of those here today that don't know you. And for us who do know you, Lord, cause us to our affections to rise for Christ and to worship him this day in ways that we've never imagined before. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.